On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Tom McCall and Dr. Keith Stanglin about Jacob Arminius as a theologian of grace. So we cover all sorts of topics like who is Arminius, what is his position regarding the infamous statement on do what it lies within you, is Arminius truly a synergist, and what really is that term mean anyway? Given Arminius' statements, is he rightly considered a semi-Pelagian? What does he think about penal substitution, and should we think of Arminius as reformed in any sense? And much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas and requests for the show in general, hit us up on Twitter or Facebook, or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now, for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak, and I'm joined by Hunter Heinzman, our review editor. And we are a podcast that is dedicated to serious thinking for a serious church. And one of the ways we've tried to explain what serious thinking looks like is we want to cultivate sort of an intellectual culture of things like charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. Uh, those aren't all the things, but they are four C's that I really like to, to emphasize that give a little bit of shape to, I think, what we've been trying to do with the podcast, with our website, and with our expanding presence is just having an open frame of mind, like James 3 tells us the wisdom from above is. So it's open to reason, it's gentle, it's kind. That doesn't mean forsaking uh, rigorous argumentation. That doesn't mean forsaking uh, careful thinking in any respect. It just means uh, treating people with the respect and honor they deserve, which also means presenting arguments in ways that my opponent or my or whoever it may be agrees with and says, yes, that's that's how I would say it. Today, I am thrilled to reintroduce you all to Dr. Tom McCall and introduce you all for the first time to Dr. Keith Stanglin. So if you guys don't know them, you probably should know them. So Tom has been on the show before. We talked about, I think, like his, his work on analytic Christology. He's done a ton of stuff. So he's done a lot of cool things in the analytic theology world. I'll link to some of those as well as that as that show so you can go listen to it because I really enjoyed that, talking Trinity, Christology, and, and things like that. But the episode today we want to focus on is on Jacob Arminius and his theology, and maybe some common misconceptions, uh, faulty charges against Arminius, uh, because I think, me, I'm a Calvinist, um, and there was a period when I was in a cage stage sort of Calvinist, and I thought Arminians were like terrible people, and they, they, they clearly they don't read their Bibles, they just import their philosophical presuppositions on the text. You know, and, and whatever other cool Calvinist trope that you can think of, I probably thought it at that time foolishly. Uh, I didn't realize that I was just totally wrong. So I, I'm thrilled to introduce you all to them. And I do want to mention two of their books. So they have one, 2012, on Jacob Arminius, Theologian of Grace, which may be news to you if you're a Calvinist listener. Yes, he believes in grace. And then we also have Armini after Arminius, uh, which just won the Wesleyan Theological Society's Book of the Year Award. So that one was from OUP in 2020. And it's got a ton of useful, relevant information. I think both of them, or one of them at least, is endorsed by Richard Muller. So all of you nerds who love Richard Muller, here we have proof that this is, uh, this is quality stuff. I have to do that just because I think uh, 90% of our listeners are probably more Calvinistic, uh, Reformed, 
if they're reforms, maybe they should like Arminius. We don't know. I guess we'll find out. Enough of me talking. I want to hear from Tom and Keith on Arminius. Maybe, Tom, give me like the 30-second like spiel, like where are you at? And then, Keith, you can tell me like 30, 60 seconds. Where are you at? What do you do? Um, why do you like to think about Arminius? Those sort of things. Hi, my name is, as Jordan said, is Tom McCall. And I just first want to thank uh, Jordan and Hunter for this conversation. And thank Keith for uh, his friendship and to be able to work with him all these years. And I'm going to throw out one more just shot of gratitude as well, since you just mentioned him, Jordan. I want to thank Richard Muller. Um, he's he's amazing. Um, incredible scholar, and he's been very uh, supportive. And um, I'm just privileged to have studied with him and honored to actually consider him a friend. So um, thanks to all of you. So I teach theology at uh, Asbury Theological Seminary, and in my second year here, before that, I taught for one year across the street at Asbury University. Before that, 16 and a half years at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. And along the way, also served as the director of the Carl Henry Center for Theological Understanding there uh, when we had some cool stuff going on theology and science. Um, and also was for several years um, on faculty at University of St. Andrews in Scotland. And as Jordan said, I work in systematic and analytic theology but also um, do some work in historical theology, especially um, early modern scholasticism, and particularly on Arminius. So thanks for having me on. Yeah, and Tom, one one question. You also have, and if I'm in trouble for talking about this forthcoming book, then you can tell me that I'm a bad person for bringing it up. But I think you're working on something about like the nature of good works in that period, like early modern reform period, like scholasticism. Is that right? So I do have a book coming out, um, co-authored with a couple of friends, and part of what I do in there, I don't do it nearly enough. There's all people looking for dissertation topics, by the way. There's a ton here. Um, but the Doctrine of Good Works in Early Modern Protestant Theology, I mean, it's woefully underexplored and really ripe for some really, really interesting analysis, um, both historically and theologically. So I do I do a, a little bit of the history historical stuff in that book. But the book itself is a bit broader, and I'm I'm working with a pastoral theologian and a biblical scholar, and so the book is entitled um, "The Doctrine of Good Works: Recovering a Neglected Protestant Teaching," and so we're we're looking at uh, what the doctrine of good works is. Yeah, that one um, it's it's going to surprise some people. Yeah. Maybe we'll maybe we'll be talking about it at yeah. some other point. It's 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 uh set to release in July with Baker Academic. Okay, excellent. So if you're listening to this in the future from when we're recording this, uh, because we all believe in the A th- or B theory of time here, apparently, um, you can go buy it and I'll put the link in there and you can enjoy it from there and on. But if you're listening to this when it we record this right out, you'll have to wait and pre order. If you're a four-dimensionalist, then some later temporal part of you will want to check back in. <laughs> That's right. I'm glad that I can make these jokes here. So depending on who we have on the show, I can and can't make jokes. Yeah. So Keith, now introduce yourself. Tell me a little bit about what you do. Yeah, thank you, Jordan. Uh, I want to echo what Tom said. Uh, thanks to you and to Hunter for this opportunity and for this conversation and to Tom for uh, many years of collaboration on uh, Arminius and 
uh, later Arminians. Uh, it's been good. Uh, and that friendship has, has been good. And yeah, I think that's great to shout out to Richard Muller, who uh, taught both of us uh, in our PhD programs and has remained uh, a friend and supporter uh, for uh, many years now. Um, yeah, so I uh, have taught uh, historical theology uh, for uh, a while at, at different places. Uh, I started my uh, career teaching at Harding University, uh, a Christian university in Arkansas, and uh, taught there for seven years. And then uh, I taught at Austin Graduate School of Theology uh, for nine years. Uh, the last two years, I've been a professor of theology at Heritage Christian University, and then uh, I'll be incoming in uh, this coming fall, uh, professor of historical theology at Harding School of Theology, which is their seminary in Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, I will be doing that uh, part-time. Uh, my full-time ministry over the last couple of years is uh, director of the Center for Christian Studies, uh, which is a nonprofit ministry that uh, I uh, helped establish uh, just a couple of years ago. Um, our main purpose is sort of like bridging uh, the scholarly world uh, to the church. So we are about providing and making accessible good theological and biblical uh, resources and scholarship to equip um, people in churches who are uh, teachers, who are ministers, but uh, did not have the opportunity to attend seminary, which is actually quite a lot of people. Um, it, it's also enrichment for people who did attend seminary, who have theological training and, and want more. Uh, and opportunities to dig deeper, but yeah, we're um, our, our purpose is to equip believers with um, good, reliable, scholarly theology and biblical studies. Got it. So yeah, that's what I do. Excellent. So before I launch into thinking about the ideas that Arminius had, one of you want to give me the sixty-second elevator pitch. Somebody in your church is like, I have no idea who Jacob Arminius is. Just give me that like real short explanation to like locate him historically. Where is he at? What is he doing? Is he a pastor? Is he a teacher? Those sort of things. Yeah, uh, I'll take a stab at it. Um, the elevator pitch, uh, I must ask them if they know anything about the Reformation or Calvinism first. And if they do, then I can proceed. But Arminius was a, a Dutch theologian in uh, the latter part of the 16th and then the early 17th century. He died in 1609, just to give you an idea of his dates there. Uh, he is most well known for being uh, an opponent of what is uh, normally thought of as Calvinism. Um, and people often, of course, think of the five points of Calvinism and all that. So that's a good starting point there. But yeah, he was um, a theologian in the Dutch Reformed Church. He was uh, trained in uh, Reformed theology, um, among other places, in Geneva under uh, Theodore Beza, who was Calvin's successor there. Uh, he was a very successful uh, pastor 
in the Dutch Reformed Church in Amsterdam uh, for 15 years. And then the the final uh, six years of his life, he was a professor of theology at the um, uh, Leiden University in the Theological College there. So he was training ministers in the Reformed Church there. Uh, he was... Uh, he got into controversies in his own lifetime, uh, particularly while he was a professor uh, over issues related to predestination and in grace. And so he taught uh, conditional predestination that God elects believers. And uh, he taught that grace uh, does everything that it does uh, for uh, in the view of Calvin and uh, most of the Reformed, but for him, the uh, difference is that it's resistible in its operation. So that that's helpful, and I want to know, so there seem to be several sort of claims that end up getting put on Arminius for some reason regularly. So I want to know, number one, is this a fair thing to place on Arminius? And if it's not, why is it not? So one of those seems to be this infamous claim that I uh, cannot pronounce for the life of me. So you guys can fix this for me when I say it wrong. The facentibus quote in est or in say est statement. Like what in the world does that mean? Does Arminius believe it? Should we think he believes it? Like what in the world is going on here? So I don't know who wants to take that one. I will let either of you have a chance at it. Okay, um, I'll take another stab at it here. And Tom, you'll just have to uh, insert yourself when you need to. But uh, yeah, uh, different ways to pronounce it. Probably the the classical uh, Latin would be something like faciantibus quod est. So, um, which literally uh, means to those who do what is in them. So it is... Uh, it's it's the beginning of a sentence. The rest of that sentence is, uh, God will not deny grace. So the idea is, do your best, do what is in you, and God will then come and bestow grace if you do your best. So when it's just put out in those terms, and there's nothing else that qualifies it. Uh, what that implies is that uh, the salvation process starts with the human being, fallen human being, of course, in in our uh, situation, and then God comes in and sort of makes up the rest, all right, or at least at least uh, gives grace that then we further cooperate with. But the question there is, where does that salvation process begin? What is the initium fide, the beginning or initial step of faith? With whom does that start? And as that sentence, that phrase, faciantibus um, quadense est, uh, uh, states it, it starts with the human being. So uh, Arminius was... And interrupt me if you have questions about anything I'm saying here, but Arminius uh, was accused of teaching that. 
So in 1608, the year before he died, the controversies were really uh, increasing. And uh, that uh, came out, that was evident in 31 articles that were spuriously attributed to him and began to circulate in the Netherlands and among the churches uh, at, at that time. So he felt the need to respond to these 31 uh, attributed articles. In most cases, he said, you know, th this is nothing I ever said before, or he would come back and say, you know, the, whoever wrote this uh, got it wrong in this way, and he would qualify it. Well, one of those articles said uh, that he taught this phrase. He comes back and says, this is a ridiculous phrase. I've never taught this before. Um, anyone who would put it like this uh, must not be a very skilled theologian anyway. So he does everything he can to reject that phrase as it's given there. Now, there's a background to it. It is a late medieval phrase that's um, popularized by Gabriel Beale in the 15th century. And these are people whom the Augustinians uh, really were worried about. These did seem to be sort of Pelagianizing uh, theologians. So they ascribe this to Arminius. He denies it. He says, the only way I would accept this phrase is if before the person does what is in them, if we put grace in there. In other words, what's wrong with it is that it begins with the human being, not with God's grace. Salvation, Arminius says, begins with God's grace. He says it throughout his writings. He says it in his Declaration of Sentiments, and he says it in this response. He says uh, the, the problem with this is uh, God's grace is not present there. If we were to rephrase it and say God gives his grace, and then the person who has received this grace does something with that grace, that is, accepts it, and then, you know, responds in a positive way. God gives more grace. He says, then I could accept that statement. But he still doesn't. Um, that's all. That's all completely true. He still never adopts it or endorses it. Um, he rejects it. Like Keith was saying, the first thing he does is reject it. And it's really vehement rejection. He's like, it never entered my mind. And it wouldn't to anyone with the least skill in theology. Like, Nobody would say this who 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 gets it at all, and he's actually he actually says it's calumny. Like this is this is is slander to say this of me. And then he goes on, as Keith said, and says, "Now, if you one were one were to tweak it this way, or not just tweak. I mean, it's a serious revision. But if one were to revise it this way, he says it wouldn't be absurd, right? It it this is a way of being neither absurd nor heretical. But he still doesn't endorse it." There's no embrace of it. Um, he doesn't use it elsewhere in his theology. It just doesn't I mean all this is doing is saying, I never said it, never thought about saying it. No one should. Here's one way. If you were to to change it, then it wouldn't be heretical or or yeah. or, or whack. Um, like here's a way you could. And um, but but he still isn't like he's not he's not saying it's a great way to go at things. Now um, this still comes up though. So um, John Fesco just wrote this recent book and it's, it's a helpful book in some ways, but this is a major theme in the book. I mean, he's, he starts with this and he says, 
Arminius is Arminius endorses the Facientibus, and he it it one of his terms is it drops the die of the Facientibus and its theology, which then poisons the whole thing, so that every aspect of the Ordo Salutis then is tainted by it and becomes toxic. I mean, that that's his language for it. Well, that's just that's pretty serious misunderstanding of what Arminius is actually doing there. Um, furthermore. Suppose suppose we were to go with Arminius's uh, qualification on that. And again, I want to make it clear, Arminius doesn't endorse that or embrace that or say that's a great way to talk. But suppose we, you know, suppose he did. What's interesting to me is that you can find that sort of language, now not that phrase, but you can find these notions of um, the utter necessity of prevenient grace and also the requirement of cooperating grace and thirdly, this notion that grace is given upon grace. You can find that all over various parts of the of, the, of his con- Reformed contemporaries. Um, the Reformed theological tradition also has those notions of provenience, cooperation, and this sense that grace is given, further grace is given to those who p- respond positively to initial grace. I mean, you, I mean, you can see that in... Um, the Brit stuff in the continental stuff, it, it's 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 fairly widespread actually. So the irony is here is that Arminius doesn't do this, um, but that some of the Reformed come really close. Now they don't they don't no more than him do they adopt the phrase. Yeah, let's let's use the phrase. The, let's use this line. They don't, but they do teach the necessity of provenience, the necessity of cooperation, and this notion that God grants further grace to those who respond positively to the first grace is given. Yeah. So I'm curious here. I do want to follow up on the cooperation idea in a second, but I'm wondering, is part of the reason you think that people might ascribe this to say, oh, well, Arminius does accept this. Is that because they're suspicious of him to begin with? And so when they see him making some sort of qualification, they think, oh, that's, that seems to be him accepting it in some way. For me, I'm like, that seems no different than any other scholastic theologian denying something and then reformulating it and saying, well, if you said it this way, then, then it's, then it's okay. But like, what's the impetus for attributing false claims to Arminius here? Is it just misreading, misunderstanding? Is it that it's hard to find what Arminius says? Like, I, I just don't understand what's going on. Well, it's not hard to find because the only place he addresses it directly is is where he gives a forceful denunciation. So it's not hard to find. I don't think it's hard to understand, but I don't know what else to I don't know what else to conclude. Okay, is that Fair people enough. must just continue to misunderstand. Fair enough. Yeah, I mean, I can't uh, reiterate enough what what Tom has just said that the only time Ar- Arminius mentions this phrase <laughs> is when he's accused of teaching it, and then he denies teaching that with, again, force. So uh, it's, I don't know what to call it. I mean, I don't so know is if it's genuous then... or if it's, if it's, I don't know what the motive yeah. is, but when, uh, when, um, a contemporary, uh, our contemporaries, when a modern uh, scholar says, 
that Arminius taught this. And another one says Arminius invoked this formula or accepted this formula. I, I don't understand uh, why, unless it is something like what you're saying, Jordan, and that is, look, we know Arminius is, I'm, I'm reformed. I know Arminius is the bad guy, that he must be a semi-Pelagian. And so even when he denies it, it's in the back door there somewhere. And so what Fesco does is say, okay, maybe that's not the place to see it, but where he really teaches this uh, phrase in, in the, not the phrase, but the theology uh, that it means to reflect is in this um, another place where he gives this beggar analogy and then kind of leaves it at that and says, yes, he taught this phrase. So, so it seems almost that, what they mean, those who say Arminius taught this, what they really mean is, I think Arminius, ultimately, his theology entails this. Is that the right way to think about what they probably mean? Well, uh, but but they're not saying that. Mm. Uh, when, when, for example, Fesco says he taught this phrase, uh, that, that's how he puts it in uh, his book here, that he's going to prove that he taught this, and then he calls it, uh, you know, the facientibus quod est. And then the subheading says, qualified acceptance. Well, not really. Or when Michael Horton says he invoked, I'm quoting here, Arminius himself invoked the facientibus. That sounds like they're saying to their readers, yeah. Arminius approved, taught this, um, it's not that, uh, you know, it could come out this way or entail something like this. Um, but I, yeah, I mean, that may be a generous way to, to think about it, but that's not exactly what they're saying there. Well, y'all brought up this idea of co- cooperating grace, and um, it just brings up questions of, you know, this idea of synergism. Uh, what does synergism even mean? Was Arminius a synergist? How does he compare to other Reformed uh, scholastics in, in that time period? Uh, were they synergists? Um, how does cooperating grace apply to regeneration? Those, those type of questions, I think, are, uh, are, would be helpful for me to kind of just think through some of this stuff. Well, part of the problem here is that most of the, at least, well, I, actually, I think this is to some degree true at their own time. But in the late 20th and 21st centuries, we have these terms like synergism being sort of thrown around with very little attention given to, to careful definition, either conceptually, sort of in a, in a contemporary analytic sense, or even historically. And so there's these sort of uh, stereotypes that emerge. And it's that Arminius and maybe a few of the, you know, the bad Lutherans were quote unquote synergists. And everybody, all the good guys were the monergist. And frankly, those categories don't help us. And actually, they're really misleading. Um, Because in some ways, depending on what we're talking about, right, depending on what it is to which we refer, they're all monergist. And well, at least at least all the, the sort of Orthodox Lutheran scholastics and Arminius and uh, and the reformed, they're all monarchs. And if um, and if we allow that to include cooperation, including in good works, which many of the reformed will say are strictly speaking necessary for salvation, 
Well, in some sense, they're all synergists. And we're not just talking about synergism in certain areas. We're talking about in the order of salvation. It's just it's just part of the picture. I mean, it just is. Um, and so then it's just it, it's it becomes too sloppy and just too easy to, to weaponize to refer to one group as synergist and one group as as monergist. I, I actually wonder if we'd just be better off without those terms at all. I mean, I mean, if we want to um, really get precise and specify, clarify what we mean by those, then they may be more helpful. If we're not going to do that, we should just drop them because it's just not it's not helpful. It's misleading. And honestly, it's misleading to a lot of reform people who don't actually understand their own theological tradition as well as they probably could, mm-hmm. partly because these stereotypes are misleading. So, it, yeah, it's unfair to I think it's unfair to to people like Arminius and some of the Lutheran scholastics. But it also turns out to be um, really, I think, unhelpful to people who are actually trying to understand and own and the Reformed tradition itself. Yeah. So I've got two related but somewhat separate questions. Uh, I guess first, I don't see Arminius on monergism.com, so that seems to settle the issue for me. (laughs) Yeah, there we go. But really, uh, I have two questions. So when it comes to cooperation— you mentioned one that it seems to be pretty common among the reform to say there is some form of cooperation with good works. Help me to think through, is that a, there's you oftentimes in reform circles, the categories of law and gospel, and they want to keep them separate and say, we don't want to blend these two things together. Does saying there's cooperation and good works and that those are necessary in some sense, end up blending that in some way. And then the other question I would love to have a little bit of clarity on is just in what sense is there potential synergism with regeneration? So I think a lot of more Calvinistic leaning guys are going to look at that and say, look, regeneration, if you have, if you're regenerate, then you're going to become a Christian. If you're not, then you're not. So like how in the world do we understand the role of cooperation or if there is cooperation at all in regeneration? So those are two different questions but I wanted to ask them together and you can ask, answer whatever you want. So the, the, among the Reformed, um, there is widespread agreement that good works are, strictly speaking, necessary for salvation. Then there's disagreement about exactly how. Like, how should we think of that? I think there's very widespread, virtually unanimity, I would say. I mean, I haven't read everybody, but I think it's super widespread, right? I feel comfortable in saying this. That uh, it's very, very widespread, the, the idea, the conviction that good works are necessary as, as fruit or evidence, right? Fructus. Um, so like a tree produces fruit, you both know what kind of tree it is and how healthy the tree is by what kind of fruit is produce, produced. I think that's really widespread. But it, they don't stop there. And many of the reformed go quite a ways beyond that. And so some will refer to, and I won't get into the details here. Um, you can read, you can read the other book, Jordan, uh, when it comes out. Uh, see what I just did there? Um, but I won't go into the details here. But let me just sketch it. Some of the reformed do not hesitate to refer to good works as a uh, condition, a necessary condition of salvation, a condition sine qua non, right? Without which none. Some go further and refer to it not only as a condition, but as a cause of salvation. 
And then they'll differ among themselves on what they mean by cause, like what kind of cause is it? And here they'll here they they here you see scholastics doing the scholastic thing. And you know, for many it's an instrumental cause, but for some it's a prime, it's sorry, it is a secondary efficient cause, secondary and inferior efficient cause. Now, we're not talking about to get rewards or to show other people. We're talking about to be saved. We're talking about um, necessary for salvation. And so cooperation, of course, is vitally necessary. Now, you can only do these good works by God's grace, but they must be done. And God's not going to do them for you. So this is where cooperation is just part of the picture. Now, if you read someone like like Turretin, for instance, he's a he's admirably clear about this, that good works with respect to justification are only consequent and declaratory, right? So they follow our justification and they they give evidence of it. When it comes to glorification at the other end, good works are entirely antecedent. Right? They, they come before. But when it comes to sanctification, they are um, both, um, he will say that they are actually constitutive. They actually are the, a, a means by which God actually sanctifies us. Now, here's the, here's the thing. All, as you know, of course, for all these Reformed folk, salvation cannot be reduced to justification. So someone who is not sanctified is not saved. So then in that sense, cooperation with grace and good works are necessary for salvation. Now, again, as I said, they'll differ among themselves about exactly how they're to be understood. Now, are they for justification per se? No, they all deny, at least all the ones that I know. Well, um, there's one who wobbles on this among the reform, but we'll leave that for another day. But in the main, they all deny that they're, they're, um, that they're necessary for justification. But for salvation more broadly considered, they are necessary. Now, does that mix law and gospel? Now, it's interesting to say this. Some of the Lutheran scholastics seem to think it does. And so some of them will deny um, that good works are necessary. They'll affirm that they're necessary, but deny the phrase necessary for salvation. So, for instance, Johann Gerhard, uh, a contemporary of Arminius, um, actually, actually discusses both Arminius himself, um, and, or at least the remonstrance, and also um, the Reformed. And he says, we deny the good works are necessary for salvation against the Lutherans, or sorry, against the Reformed and against the Arminians. But if you, once he, he does still say they're necessary, and when you spell out, when you see him spell out how they're necessary, it's necessary as evidence, it's necessary for testimony, it's necessary to glorify God, it's necessary by precept, and also, guess what? It's necessary so that we don't forfeit the grace which we have received, which looks a lot like what the Reformed are saying and yeah. what Arminius is saying. So he doesn't like the phrase, but he adds that in. Yeah. All right, yeah, Keith, I went too long. No, it's okay. <laughs> I, I will just amplify a little bit of what you were saying, maybe, and also... Um, go back and address um, something that uh, Hunter asked uh, before that, but on the issue of cooperation, uh, 
that's uh, inherent in the Christian tradition, even the Augustinian tradition. So there is first grace, and I think this is what Tom is saying. There's the first grace that comes from God that prevenes, that precedes any act of human will. That is monergistic. That comes from God alone. That's Augustinian, and that's Arminian. That's what he's saying. Nothing can be done that uh, good from the human side without God's grace. It comes first. So provenient grace is not an Arminian or Wesleyan invention. That's Augustinian and, and just patristic. Uh, so uh, Augustine makes that distinction, and then there is subsequent grace. So that, that that's sort of the the the, the main distinction. Two distinction. Uh, two parts to grace. There's the provenient. And then the human responds, accepts the grace in some way, and then there is subsequent grace that uh, God continues to give for justification and sanctification. Uh, and that is cooperative. So Augustine in De Natura et Gratia against Pelagius, this is a treatise against Pelagius, Augustine says, indeed, we also work, but we cooperate with the one who works because his mercy comes before provenes is the latin word there us but it comes before so that we may be healed etc okay he says augustine says we cooperate with the one who gives that first grace Uh, aquinas uh, had the same distinction he says just as grace is divided into operating and cooperating and into that corresponds to provenient and subsequent. So all Christian theologians say that there is cooperating grace. You know where it comes in, what the nature of that cooperation is, whether that grace again. Here's what it comes down in my mind uh, for Arminius: whether that grace is resistible or not uh, is is the main question. But that there is grace that. Uh, comes first monergistically from God, and then there is grace that we that God invites us to cooperate with. Does not seem to be the main distinction between Arminius and his opponents. So the question is: He a synergist? Again, where do you locate the synergism? Which is just the Greek equivalent of cooperator, uh, cooperate. Where do you uh, ident- uh, locate the cooperation there? So anytime someone says, is X or is Arminius a synergist, I simply want to ask for a definition of synergism. We have to define it and qualify it before we answer that question. Yeah, no, that, that's helpful. I am afraid I don't want to let this interview go on for four hours because there's so many things I want to ask. So I want to make sure that I get this one in. We've danced around the terminology of semi-Pelagianism. What does that mean? And should Arminius be categorized as that? I've seen that charge more times than I can count. So like, is that right? Is he a semi-Pelagian, whatever that is supposed to mean? Yeah. Uh, So again, when that question is asked, as it just was, uh, my first question is, what do we mean by semi-Pelagian? So... Uh, the the term is ambiguous, just like synergism is. The the phrase, the term was coined 
uh, as best we can tell, in 1556 by Theodore Beza. And he was using it to describe Roman Catholics who, to his mind, gave too much uh, credit to human free will in the salvific process. Okay. So uh, Arminius was accused of this. Again, in those 31 articles we mentioned earlier, he was accused also of being a semi-Pelagian. When that accusation came to him, that was still a pretty new term uh, coined by his teacher, Beza, as a sort of polemic against their contemporaries. Uh, Later, it was applied to the... uh, Fifth century uh, Massilians, uh, but uh, that that actually uh, came later. So Arminius recognizes this for what it is in his reply. He denies being a semi-Pelagian, but he says the term is ambiguous. It is simply a polemical term. So he, uh, just riffing off of him a little bit here, I'll go into a little more detail, but just imagine sort of a a spectrum or a continuum where on the left you have full-blown Pelagianism, which denies any um, effects of original sin, that uh, denies any distinction between nature and grace, that says we can do it all ourselves and and follow the law, etc. Okay, very high view of fallen humanity and uh, and expectations for sanctification. On the opposite end, on the right side, let's say of that spectrum, you have just everything totally opposite. So you have uh, a very negative view of humanity after the fall, very low expectations for sanctification. Let's say outright denial of all freedom of choice and freedom of will, no ability to do good, antinomian, sort of your, uh, the, Hyper, hyper Augustinian, hyper Calvinist uh, that that we can think of. Well, if you are closer to the right side of that spectrum, then anyone to your left is going to be semi-Pelagian or Pelagianizing, and that's all Arminius says. Semi just is just means half. So, so you've got half Pelagian. We can invent one quarter, one eighth, three quarters Pelagian. You know, it, it's just a polemical term. It would be like, um, just as orthodoxy is in some ways uh, the uh, middle ground between two extremes, uh, a you know Monophysite who looks at a Chalcedonian is going to see this business about uh, two natures in Christ as being Nestorian. And so they would call somebody a half Nestorian. Or a Nestorian is going to look at you know, a Chalcedonian who talks about the hypostatic union and say, this is a half Eutychian or whatever. All right. So it's, it's a long process, you know, very traditional um, uh, pedigree here of assigning um, a heretical name to something you don't agree with. Someone who's just to the left of you in the spectrum that I just uh, said. So that's uh, what we can say about sort of the origin of that term and what Arminius uh, thinks about it. Uh, but how do we define it? If it's defined as it usually is, as something like what Beale said, and that is the you know, doing your best, that 
uh, faith starts with the human, the fallen human, and not with God. If that's how we define semi-Pelagian, Arminius is definitely not a semi-Pelagian in that uh, sort of Beale, late medieval uh, nominalist uh, tradition there. Uh, if you want to define it as someone who thinks that grace is resistible, and in that sense, cooperating with that subsequent grace, then yeah, so be it. But then most of the Christian tradition now is semi-Pelagian. And most, most Protestants, including the Lutheran scholastics, they are too. Like it, it, then it turns out, you know, almost everyone turns out to be. So I'll, I'll echo what he said and affirm it. Also just want to add to it. Like if we were to ask like the, the Beale question, right? Take, take his views as sort of, um, you know, the, the standard of what counts as semi-Pelagianism, then clearly no, Arminius is not. If you want to take it um, as is sometimes applied to sort of say anyone who violates um, what's stated about sin and grace in the, the, it's the Synod of Orange, Orange in 529 AD. Like if you want to, if you want to be anachronistic and use the label that way, well, turns out he's not either. In fact, Arminius thinks he's got the, the high ground there um, against some of his reformed opponents. Because, of course, um, that, that statement uh, from 529 not only anathematizes these views that we can initiate grace or we initiate salvation or whatever, it also anathematizes views that God predestines anyone or anything to evil. So Arminius is like, if you want to go there, I'm I'm good. I'm here. Um, so this is one of Arminius's patristic appeals that he'll do, he'll make. So um if we do if we do those things now, um, so it just depends on how one defines it. But on so far as I can see, on any kind of plausible, historically grounded definition, that is something that's not made up just purposefully <laughs> so that he fits in it, right? Yeah. Um on anything that's grounded in the history of these discussions, it turns out it looks like he's not a semi-Pelagian. The only yeah. exception would be if we were to say everyone who doesn't accept irresistible grace is a semi-Pelagian. Then, okay, he counts. But then anyone who disagrees is in a pretty small corner over there, um, too. Yeah. So I, I want to ask one more question. And I know if you're listening... Tom and Keith are not negative theologians. They are positive, constructive theologians. Part of the way this interview is just structured is myth-busting. So just to be clear, we're not just sitting here just trying to, like, trash talk other people. But I, I, this is published work. I saw something the other day. Someone just shared this with me. Did not know I was doing this interview. And I'm sitting here thinking, wow, this is fascinating. I've got to ask them about this. So Bob Letham and his systematic theology says on the nature the scope of the atonement so he's talking about when Christ went the uh, when Christ went to the cross who were the intended beneficiaries of his sacrifice um and he says penal substitution is not held by arminianism penal substitution requires that the atonement was definitively achieved at the cross where Christ made effective atonement for sinners arminianism denies this for arminianus for arminius Christ simply suffered is that a fair representation of Arminianism? Like, what? what how, how does he think of the atonement? 
I'm sorry, it's just mistaken. Um, it's it's far too paints with far too broad a brush. If he asks, he talks about Arminius, and he also talks about Arminians and Arminianism. Well, that that's super broad. And if one wants to, for instance, um, look at some of the the major 19th century Methodist theologians, the sort of counterparts of of the Hodges and Warfield and that, right? If one wants to look at at, at some of the major 19th century theologians of Methodism, one can see people who reject penal substitution in favor of other views. You can. They're there. One can also find people, and it's not hard to do, who do not reject penal substitution, but who in fact defend a version of it. Um, now, I think it's... if it's important to be clear about what we mean by that. And so if you take a narrow pecuniary understanding of penal substitution, then no, they don't. But if you're going to do that, then even Charles Hodge um, doesn't do that. So <laughs> um, depends on what one means, I guess, to some degree. But in general, the answer is that's a, a very um, broad brush and uh, and it, just an inaccurate statement. Yeah, uh, I would add... I mean, even those who uh, went with something like what we call the governmental theory or kind of followed Hugo Grotius on that, I'm not sure that they would say that, what did Lethem say? Christ simply died? and He, he simply has, suffered. Sim, okay, simply suffered. Like it has no meaning at all is sort of what's implied there. I'm not sure any Arminians uh, would have said that. Certainly not Arminius, as, as Tom said. Uh, there's actually a, a pretty common Arminian polemic that goes back to Arminius himself, that it's the uh, reformed order of decrees, and particularly the supralapsarian order, where uh, which sort of denigrates Christ and makes, in some ways, the atonement unnecessary because God has chosen specific individuals for salvation and to give them grace before, uh, certainly way before he talked, you know, that he considers uh, Christ in the atonement uh, before he considers even sin. And so uh, Arminius sort of makes the point, you know, what you've at the very least, you've made Christ simply a means. Other opponents would say sort of an unnecessary means for salvation. I'm not going there. I'm just saying that, what to do with the atonement? It's not exactly clear that the reformed, uh, some reformed versions, uh, are any better with it. <laughs> so. Sure. Okay. So uh, maybe a, a good question to end on is just thinking about Arminius's place in, let's say, the reformed tradition. Where does he fit? Is he should we think of him as a reformed theologian, or should we think of him? Separately, like we think of Lutheranism separately. They're Protestants, but they are enough distinctiveness about them to say, no, they're not Reformed. Where does he fit, and how should we think about that today, I guess? Uh, so, yeah, that's also a very big question, and one you will not be surprised that I first want to say in response, what do we mean by Reformed? <laughs> <laughs> so. Please define reformed uh, for us. So uh, certainly uh, socially, ecclesiastically, there is no doubt 
I don't think anyone would contest, they can't uh, contest, that Arminius was Reformed. He was educated uh, and trained in Reformed theology. He was a very successful uh, pastor uh, for 15 years in an important Reformed church and uh, was a professor and died in that office in good standing. Uh, controversial, but in good standing with um, the Reformed Church. So he certainly was uh, Reformed in that sense. I think the only question here is about his theology. Uh, so uh, the the easy answer to say, yes, he was Reformed, is to note that the Synod of Dort, which is the Reformed uh, Synod, that excluded the Arminian viewpoints uh, came 10 years after his death. And so in a sense, it would be anachronistic to uh, say that Arminius uh, was not reformed uh, based on something that happened uh, 10 years uh, after he was around. Uh, the uh, other side of that is to note that, uh, and Richard Muller and, and others note this, that the confessional documents that they did have that uh, are that were uh, binding on Arminius and uh, the Reformed Church in his lifetime, uh, <clears throat> they, uh, by their author's intent, and by the way, most people uh, uh, interpreted those documents, the Belgic Confession and Heidelberg Catechism, um, tended towards something that would exclude conditional predestination and therefore would exclude Arminius from it. But yeah, so the issue is on that point, you know, it, it, they still needed further definition. And that's what the Synod of Dort, uh, Dort gave to the Belgic Confession of Heidelberg Catechism. They were ambiguous on those things. It is possible as an Arminian to subscribe to what they say about um, predestination, just like with Article 17 of the 39 Articles, it, it, it's, it stays pretty ambiguous there, regardless of what Ursinus and the author may have uh, intended or what they themselves believed. A confessional document, at least those, is meant to stay a little bit ambiguous, meant to uh, have sort of a large umbrella there. Uh, but sense. certainly Arminius, uh, his, his theology went in a different direction, went on a different trajectory than most of his reformed contemporaries and colleagues on these issues of predestination and grace and, and related things. So, yeah, that's why I can't answer it unless we define uh, reformed uh, on that. So. By later confessional standards, no, he's clearly not reformed. And there's, there's just, and we shouldn't pretend that he is. Um, strictly as a historical record of his own person and his time, clearly he was. But he was also controversial, and I think it's safe to, fairly safe to say, a minority figure. One, one really kind of interesting point uh, I'll, I'll make just at the end here is that I've always really liked the Heidelberg Catechism, and so I, I arrive here to teach at Asbury Theological Seminary a couple years ago. And a senior um, colleague in church history who knows the history of American Methodism very, very well told me that the found, one of the founding theological documents of the United Methodist Church is the Heidelberg Catechism. Like 
they didn't see anything problematic and they saw a lot that was really good. So um, yes, by later standards, he does not count. By his, in his own time, he's definitely controversial. He may, may very well be, a, probably is a minority figure, but strictly speaking, his view still counts at that point. Uh, I heard uh, a few years ago, Alvin Plantinga say, um, someone said, your views sound very Arminian, sort of all the way down. And he just shrugged and in characteristic Plantinga fashion said, so Arminius was reformed too. He just lost a vote. <laughs> and he shouldn't have. <laughs> yeah. And, and let me add uh, to there that Arminius, I see him as trying to make room in this reformed umbrella, under this reformed umbrella, make room for resistible grace, conditional predestination. Uh, because it's somewhat ambiguous. Those confessions that we just mentioned also all lean toward infralapsarianism, as the Synod of Dort does as well. And so Arminius, he doesn't quite put it in these terms, but I'm paraphrasing a lot of his project here, is if the supralapsarians can be considered reformed, even though they're pushing the boundaries on a lot of these uh, points having to do with predestination, then my version of it ought to also be reformed for all of these reasons. Declaration yeah. of Sentiments, he mentions this, but that's what he's pushing for. It is the later synod council that says, no, we're going to accept the one, supralapsarianism, though still in an uneasy way, and uh, reject the Arminian. So in that sense, he, uh, as you know, uh, Plantinga says, lost the vote, you might say, on that. But, you know, the Lutherans had these same debates. They came together at the formula, in, in the formula of Concord. The Roman Catholics had these same debates, vehement debates that were just as long or longer in the De Auxilius uh, controversies and, uh, between the Dominicans and the Jesuits. And the Pope finally came along in the early 17th century and said, okay, we're just going to agree to disagree on this and we're going to get along and we're going to remain under the same confessional umbrella here. Hmm. It's, the, it's the reformed in this time of confessionalization that drew the boundaries in a way those other fellowships did not. So am I right just to think about Arminius is pushing the boundaries on soteriology, but when it comes to other doctrines, doctrine of God, Christology, anthropology, most of those things, just standard vanilla, untouched, he's doing what everybody else is doing? Well, I don't know that he's doing exactly what everyone else is doing. Um, he is doing what everyone else is doing in, in some ways. He's trying to be faithful to the creeds. He's trying to live within the Catholic tradition. Um, Keith can say a lot more about that. Um, he's, so he's, and he's also making use of both the benefits of, of humanism that have been recovered um, and also the recovery of scholasticism much like his Reformed and Lutheran scholastic counterparts. So in that sense, yes, he is, and he's eclectic in this. So um, his doctrine of God then turns out he's he's like a whole lot of other folks and including a lot of um, a lot of Franciscans at the time and others and some Jesuits. He's more Thomist in some ways and more Scotist in other ways. Like 
it's an eclectic thing. It's a creative thing. He's pulling together these different, but that's just what people were doing then. Um, the, the one area that um, is probably most controversial um, in his own time is the so-called autotheos controversy with which he is involved. Um, so there, there is that, but um, that in the scheme of things is much, I think much less pronounced as, as a controversy than his predestination views. Where can I learn about that controversy? I have no conception of it and I am very intrigued. <laughs> so there's a book um, that came out about 10 years, uh, 11 years ago called um, Jacob Arminius, Theologian of Grace. And uh, we have a short chapter in there. Uh, uh, we have a, 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 it's not, it's not nearly fulsome enough. It's not long. It's not thorough, but it'll get you into the literature and into the conversation. That's so there. to be clear, I've read the after Arminius and not the Jacob yeah, Arminius theologian okay. of grace. Yeah. yeah. So now well, I've been outed and I have to read it. That's <laughs> it's okay. Uh, I just had to have fun with you there. Uh, Muller, Muller's, um, Trinity volume of his post-Reformation Reform Dogmatics has a discussion of it. Brandon Ellis has a, I think it's an Oxford volume on this, not on Arminius per se, but on the broader controversy where Arminius is sort of a, uh, comes in is he has a few cameo appearances, but he's not a major player in it. I'll just add that um, it, it is possible to understand the sequel without having read the yes. original yes. Uh, prequel, but yeah, it will be helpful to have both. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been a ton of fun. I could talk for two more hours about all these things, and maybe we will at some point. But I want to just issue a shout out to you guys for doing this. I appreciate it. Um, hopefully, this encourages you to extend charity and to examine other people's arguments uh, to see if what they're saying is actually true. Uh, the older I've gotten, the more I've realized that um, just because you have a PhD or just because you teach somewhere doesn't make you infallible. You can make mistakes like everybody else. So it's good to always check and verify um, when a claim is made, especially a strong one. Uh, oftentimes you'll find out that for whatever reason, it's just been passed down and it hasn't really been um, done appropriately. And I think that often seems to happen with Arminius for some reason. So thanks to you both for doing this with us. And hopefully everybody's been listening. You're encouraged to check out these books, to read their, their work. I mean, I, I am a Calvinist, but I can tell you I read everything Tom writes because I think he's awesome. Uh, Keith has co-wrote the, the book that I, after Arminius that I read, obviously, and enjoyed it. So check out their stuff. Careful scholars, careful thinkers, and they're doing it the right way. Um, I am excited if the future of Wesleyan theology looks anything like this so hopefully more wesleyans catch that vision and go in that direction so everybody who's been tuning in thanks for listening to the only analytic baptist and confessional podcast on the planet and we'll talk to you guys soon for the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time there's granger offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.